Well, during the days when Christianity was still openly practiced in China, there was an interdenominational conference taking place in Chengdu, China. There were Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, and even groups like the English Friends who were taking part. So there was quite a diversity in the denominations and their practices. And as they talked about baptism, it turned into a heated debate. Some were saying that you had to be sprinkled. Others were saying you needed to be fully immersed. Others were talking about when it should be done. And there were a couple of local laundry workers who were listening in to this debate taking place. And one of them said to the other, what's this big fight about? I don't understand. And the other one told his co-worker, there's not much they're talking about. It's something about whether it's a big wash, a little wash, or no wash at all. (laughs) As I think about Wayside Chapel and the different backgrounds that are here, uh, I understand that we have a very diverse set of past and practices. Uh, There are some here who are Assemblies of God, others who are Catholic backgrounds. We have Methodist, Presbyterian, Baptist, Bible, and and the list just keeps going. And so some of you have had uh, baptism where you had a big wash. You were fully immersed. Others of you maybe had a little wash, so to speak, where you were sprinkled or poured. And some of you have been dry cleaned where you haven't been baptized yet. Um, (laughs) As we look at our passage today in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, we're going to be talking about baptism. And as we talk about baptism, uh, I'll mention something about the method, but the main focus of this passage is on what is the meaning? Why, why do we get baptized? What is the purpose of it? So I invite you to look with me today in your Bible at 1 Peter chapter 3, where I want to begin by reading verses 18 through 22. It says, For Christ also died for sins once for all the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now, this is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible to interpret. So if you found yourself confused when we were reading things about uh, the spirits in prison, Noah and the ark, and what does it mean when Peter says, in corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Uh, You're in good company. Now, if you've ever talked to somebody about real estate, they'll tell you that the three most important rules about real estate are location, location, location. And when it comes to interpreting the Bible, understanding what a passage means, the most important rule is also location, or by that I mean the context. What is the context of the passage in order to properly understand what God is saying to us? And as you want to understand this passage, you have to begin in verse 18, because this is uh, the beginning of this, this uh, set of questions we're trying to answer, and it says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And what we find in that verse is one of the most clear and concise summaries of salvation. It says Christ. 
That word means the Messiah. It's pointing to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and how he came to pay the penalty of death that we all owed for our sins. And through his death on the cross, uh, our broken relationship with God was reconciled. Sin entered into the world, and there was this chasm that separated us from God. And what Jesus did when he came is he provided the bridge for us to restore this broken relationship. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So you can picture this cross of Christ down on the earth side laid across the chasm of sin with the top touching into heaven. And it gives us the bridge that we walk across through faith when we accept his death in our place. As people, we are less than perfect. We make mistakes. We sin. Sin is defined in the Bible as missing the mark. It means we're less than perfect. And every single one of us is a sinner. Romans 3.10 says there's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 tells us for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, we have a problem. Because Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin, what we earn by how we live our life, is not entrance into heaven, rather it's separation from God. The wages of sin is death. But, it says, the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so God has given us this way home to heaven through the sacrifice of his son. Jesus came and paid that penalty of death that he did not owe, taking our place on the cross so that he could wash away our sins through the shedding of his blood. This is what Peter is talking about when he says the just, that is Jesus Christ, died for the unjust. That's all of us. If you remember earlier in this letter, back in 1 Peter 1.18 through 19, we were told, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Jesus Christ was the perfect and permanent sacrifice, the spotless lamb of God who gave his life as the sacrifice to save you and me when we accept his death in our place. The Bible tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, Hebrews tells us. It goes on and says in Hebrews 10.4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Hebrews 9, 11 through 12 tells us, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Friends, this is why as Jesus died on the cross, as you read in John 19.30, our translations will say, Christ prepared to breathe his last, and he said, it is finished. The Greek word used there is teteleste. It literally means paid in full. What Jesus was saying is the penalty of death that was owed is paid in full. The account has been closed. I've made the sacrifice. It is finished. It is done. And, and he gives us his righteousness. When we accept by faith his death in our place, we are declared positionally righteous and saved. This is what it means in 1 Peter uh, verse 18 here where he says, in order that he, that is Jesus, might bring us to God 
As sinners, we were separated from God, but by his death, Jesus bought us, and he brought us back to himself. He restored that broken relationship. Friends, there is nothing we do. There is no good work. There is no uh, work like baptism that we do that saves us. It is through faith alone and Christ alone that we're saved. Jesus, when he died on the cross, didn't say, down payment made. Now you guys do the rest. Look at Luke chapter 23. You'll remember that as Jesus Christ was dying on the cross, there were two criminals, one on each side of him also being crucified that day. And as they were dying, one of them was mocking Christ. They were saying, oh, you say you're the son of God. You're the Messiah. We'll come down off the cross. Save yourself and us. And then you had the other criminal on the other side who looked at Christ and said, I believe you're who you say you are. I believe you're the Christ. I believe you're God's son sent here to save us. And he said, Jesus, remember me this day when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus said to this man in Luke 23, 42, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. It was because of the faith of this criminal, this, this man being executed for his crimes. He deserved death. And yet he said to Jesus, I believe you're who you are. He placed his faith in him and Christ said, because of that, you will be with me in heaven today. He didn't do one good work. Nobody took him down off the cross and said, okay, now go try to live a good life and see if you can get to heaven. Nobody walked by and threw water on him and said, I'm baptizing you so you can be saved. It was his faith alone that caused him to be welcomed into heaven. You can read Acts 16.30. There, the Apostle Paul and Silas were in jail and an earthquake came and they were set free from the prison and the Philippian jailer was about to kill himself because the Romans would have killed him for prisoners escaping. And they said, hey, hey, we're still here. And he brought them out and, and as he uh, heard the gospel uh, from them, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the very next verse, Acts 16.31, they say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't say believe and be baptized. Now, he was baptized along with his household a few verses later, but it was through faith alone and Christ alone at that moment. Read John 3.16. It doesn't say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him and is baptized, it says whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have the gift of eternal life. It is belief in Christ alone. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Baptism is an action, a work we can do and God says none of that saves you. It's what my son did on the cross. When we come to faith, that first step is called justification. It's where we are declared righteous based upon uh, the, the righteousness of Christ being placed on us. There are three steps theologically to a believer's life. When we're first saved, that's called justified, justification. When we die and we go home to heaven or the rapture occurs, we are glorified. That's where we enter into heaven and we are made perfect. Our sin nature is gone. We are made uh, as we will be for all eternity in perfection. And in between is a step called sanctification. It's where we live our life after coming to faith in Christ. As a believer, we begin to walk with God. We grow in obedience. We grow in our walk with God. Now, sometimes we backslide, as Christians say. We, we don't move forward and become more Christ-like. We kind of slip back into some old sin patterns and things. We never lose our salvation. 
but we, we are not living as we should. Baptism is a step of sanctification. Once you're saved, you are baptized as a step of obedience. The word disciple literally means a learner, a follower. And as we hear what God says, as we learn what his word tells us we're to do as Christians, we obey and we grow in our walk and our obedience. And that's what baptism is. It's a step of sanctification. Now, if that's true, then why does it say here, baptism saves you? I want to remind you again, do not forget the context. We've already talked about verse 18. There's a clear and concise presentation of how we're saved through what Jesus did on the cross. And then as you look at verses 18 through 20, it says, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, this is speaking of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, it says, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few that is eight persons, that's Noah and his wife, his sons and their wives, were brought safely through the water. The the earth was wiped out with the flood, and only those who were in the ark were saved, these eight individuals. The scriptures tell us after Jesus died on the cross, he was buried in the tomb for three days, and then he rose from the grave. What Peter is focused on here is what's happening during those three days in the grave. After he rose from the dead, Jesus walked the earth for 40 days, appearing to more than 500 witnesses. And then he ascended into heaven, which is what verse 22 is talking about, where it says he is currently seated at the right hand of God. And so as we're looking here, the core question is, what's going on in verses 18 through 20 during those three days that he's in the grave? This is where Peter says he went and made proclamation to the spirits who in now in prison, who once were disobedient. Now, to help you understand this, we we need to look at a couple of different Greek words here. Uh, When we read the word spirits here in verse 19, it's the Greek word pneumosin, or pneuma is the root word. And you'll find this translated in, in the English Bibles as wind, as breath, as spirit. It refers at times as one of the, the names of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so this this is a word that that um, is important to understand because there's a different word we're going to talk about here. Now, this this word that is um, used describes the Holy Spirit and supernatural angelic beings. That's angels, both those who have fallen and those who uh, did not rebel against God. Now, on a rare occasion, it's used to describe a human spirit, but that's not what Peter's talking about here because there's a different Greek word, suke, and suke is found six times in the book of First Peter. Uh, it's what's used here in verse 20. It's also found in First Peter 1.9, 122, 2.11, 2.25, 3.20, and 4.19. And what it's telling us here is those to whom Jesus made proclamation in verse 19 were not human beings. They were angelic spirits. Now, specifically, these were the fallen angels who were in prison because, you see, it says they were disobedient during the days of Noah. Now, the background here is Genesis chapter 6. The fall occurred in Genesis chapter 3. That's where sin entered into the world. Uh, Our fellowship with God was broken. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, and as the, you know, history continued, there was 
uh, more and more decadence and disobedience had happened. And when you get to Genesis chapter 6, we're in the days of Noah, where the world has, has just you know, gone into just outright rebellion against God. There's grievous sin happening everywhere. And this is when God brings judgment upon the world because he says enough is enough. Now, there was the disobedience happening as well with the, the angels who followed Satan in rebellion. They were thrown to the earth. They were cast out of heaven. And some of these fallen angels went even a step further into such abhorrent sin that God said, I have to judge it immediately. There is an ultimate judgment coming uh, when God will destroy the, the earth and the heavens and everything will be made right. But he said at this point, there were some of the angels who got outside of their created order. Uh, you'll talk to people who will say when a loved one dies, well, now they're an angel. Uh, friends, we don't become angels in heaven. Uh, angels are a lower class. We are created in the eternal image of God. You are a son or a daughter of God. The angels are servants of God, and we become sons and daughters of God in heaven. And so what happened is these angels who were created in one realm cohabitated with physical women on the earth. And it created this order called the Nephilim, the super race. And it was such an abhorrent sin that God said, I have to judge these disobedient angelic spirits immediately. And they were cast into what we call hell, Gehenna. And so we find, we find this judgment mentioned in 2 Peter 2.4. It says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Jude 1.6 tells us, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he is kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So what we're reading about here is where God goes and he makes proclamation to these spirits, this specific group of these uh, angelic beings who were in uh, such abhorrent sin that they've already been judged and are in this place of punishment. Now, there are two other Greek words I want to mention here. One Greek word for proclamation is euangelizo. And this is a word that means to preach, to proclaim the good news of the gospel. You hear us talk about evangelism. This is where it comes from, euangelizo. And you see that that's found in 1 Peter 1.12 and 125 and 4.6. The word that is used here in 1 Peter 3.19 is caruso. Caruso is another word that means to proclaim, announce, or preach, but it does not have a focus on the good news of the gospel. So it's a different proclamation that is taking place. Now, if you're saying, Roger... Can you put the cookies on the bottom shelf for me? This is all interesting, but wow, this is complicated. Here it is. You ready? In verse 19, what we're being told is this is not an offer of salvation to the lost. This is not an offer of salvation to the lost, but it is instead a proclamation of victory to those who had gone against God. Some people will tell you, well, when you die, you get a second chance, and maybe you can you know, accept Jesus after you died. There was a book written, Love Wins, and all these. That is not what the Scriptures teach. The Bible tells us it is appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. Friends, you have to accept Jesus Christ while you are physically living on this earth. When you die, your eternal destiny is set. If you receive Christ as your Savior, you will be welcomed into heaven. If you rejected Jesus while you were on this earth, you will be rejected by God, and you will have to make the payment yourself. 
You can read Revelation 20 in the great white throne judgment where the second death takes place. And all who have rejected Christ are rejected and sent to the place we call hell, the lake of fire. Now, when it says that Christ went to where the angelic spirits were, he's making this proclamation of victory over those who had gone against God. And he didn't go there to set them free, but he went to proclaim his victory over them. It's what you find talked about in Colossians 2:14 through 15, where it says, when Jesus came, he canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which were hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's speaking of what he did when he died to save us, shedding his blood to wash away our sins. When it comes to these spirits, it goes on to say in Colossians 2.15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now, there's another question that we could get into about where did Jesus go? Uh, Where was this place? Uh, uh, there, There are different places of the dead mentioned in the scriptures. On this slide, you see three different places that are mentioned in scripture. Uh... Well, Sheol got messed up. That's supposed to be Hebrew to the left. That's not the actual Hebrew text. Uh, Sheol is uh, the Old Testament. Then you have Hades, which is the Greek. And then Gehana uh, is hell or the lake of fire, what we talk about. Now, rather than go into all of this, uh, not only would your eyes glaze over, but we don't have time to go into this. So for those of you who want to know more about this, Uh, I've put a set of notes on our website. When this sermon is posted around Monday afternoon, you can find a PDF of about five pages that will allow you to go into an in-depth study about these places of the dead. And I also talk about what is purgatory. Purgatory is a Catholic doctrine that does not exist in the scriptures. And so you can read through that, study it on your own, and then come back and let me know Uh, other questions you might have. It also covers Ephesians 4, 8 through 10, where it talks about how Christ descended and he led captivity captive. So what does it mean for those of us living in this day, those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ? What happens when we die? Well, those were places uh, for the Old Testament righteous dead. Those were places for those waiting for the ultimate judgment that you read about in Revelation 20. As New Testament believers, we go right into the presence of God. When you or a loved one die, 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We go right into the presence of God because of what the Son of God, Jesus, did in dying to save us from our sins. When we accept by faith his gift, we are welcomed into heaven. Now, as Jesus is crucified on the cross, it looked like Satan won. Remember the first century Christians uh, or followers of Christ at the time said, uh, it's over. We thought he was the Messiah, but now he's dead. And they went to the tomb to, to anoint a body they thought would be there. But Jesus was not there. Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, Peter is focused on this period of time during those three days, and and where did he go? And what Jesus did was, while everybody thought Satan had won, Jesus was going around telling Satan's uh, minions, no, I won. I defeated death. I defeated Satan. And and so this is what is happening, what Peter is telling us here. It says he, he started by proclaiming his victory to the rebellious spirits. And there is a day coming when every single person will know that Jesus Christ is who he said he was and that he 
indeed conquered sin, death, and Satan. Philippians 2.10 tells us that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is looking forward to that final day of judgment. And the only reason it has not yet come is because of God's great patience, his great mercy toward us. Peter's writing here about Noah's day and how bad things were. Friends, do you think things are bad in our day? Do you think there's sin on righteousness? Are things getting worse and worse? Absolutely. And we are as deserving of judgment as they were in the days of Noah. And it is only because of God's patience and mercy he has not yet brought the judgment that our world deserves. What he's talking about here in 1 Peter 3.20 when he says the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. What this is referring to is how God gave Noah 120 years to build the ark, to preach repentance to people, to invite them to, to join him in the ark so that they could be saved. In Noah's day, God delayed his judgment because he wanted people to be saved. And it's the reason God has delayed his judgment in our day as well. If you read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 through 10, it tells us this. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. Like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. You remember after God judged the earth and he wiped it out with water, he gave us the rainbow as a sign of the covenant saying, I will never again destroy through the flood. And so what God is telling us is there is a day of judgment coming and this time there will be fire. I'm going to burn up the heavens and the earth. I'm going to wipe all this away. And the only reason he has not yet brought that judgment we deserve, that terrible time of tribulation leading up to this final uh, destruction of, of all that is wicked is because God says, I don't want people to go through that terrible time. God is a God of love and mercy and grace. And it's why he has not brought the judgment on the earth that we deserve because it tells us here he desires... For none to, he says, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Now, in Noah's day, there were eight who were saved. In our day, there are many more who have been saved. But when you look at the population of the earth, there are billions, billions of people who do not yet know Jesus is their Savior. And they will face judgment. There's a time of suffering coming for those who reject Jesus as their Savior. Friends, this isn't a turn or burn, shake or bake, fly or fry type of message where I'm trying to scare you into heaven. But I want you to know the truth. I want you to know that God is a God of love. He's also a God of holiness and justice. And he says sin has to be dealt with. Punishment will occur. And he said, I purchased the ticket home to heaven for you through my son who died on the cross to save you. And you have a choice. You can receive his death in your place. Or you can pay the penalty yourself. If you're one who has not yet come to Christ, what's keeping you from doing so? Why haven't you received his gift of grace? 
God offers you that gift today. He tells you in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. He offers you that gift of eternal life if you will turn to Christ and accept his gift of grace. Noah and the ark are mentioned here, not just because of their connection to the fallen angels who were part of this wickedness that brought about the judgment of the world, but it's also because it gives us a picture of the way that we are saved. I want you to remember Noah and his family were not saved through the water. They were saved from. They were brought through the destruction. And when it says in corresponding to that, that is what Jesus did to save you. That is what Noah and his family did, where they heard God say, you need to do this, and then they took the step of faith and belief and did it. God said, build an ark. They believed him and built it. God said, get in the ark in order not to perish, and they took that step of faith and they were saved. And that's what Peter is telling us today. He says, we need to believe what God has said. God has said, I sent my son to die for you. I sent my son to be the sacrifice, the payment for your sins. And if you believe and act in faith, accepting his death in your place, that is what saves you. It is a picture. And that's what baptism is. Baptism does not wash away your sins, friends. Peter even says it doesn't even wash away the dirt. Uh, in the first, before the sermon in the first service, we had a baptism here. And we had a, a man that was baptized, and as, as I put him under the water in our baptistry up here, uh, I said, buried in the likeness of Christ. And then as he was brought up, I said, raised in newness of life. And that's what baptism is. It is a picture of the burial and resurrection of Christ and how we as Christians who have accepted him are, are identified. We've been baptized into his death and raised in newness of life. It doesn't save us. It's the symbol of how we are saved. It's a visual reminder to all who see uh, what is happening. The, we get our word baptism from the Greek word bapto or baptizo. These are two words, bapto and baptizo. And what that word means, the Greek word means to dip or immerse. It was used to describe taking a cloth and putting it in a colored water, uh, the dye, and as you immersed it in, it took on the characteristic and it came out dyed that color. It was also used to describe a person who died by drowning. It was used to describe a ship that had sunk in the water. During uh, the war when Hitler's U-boats were prowling the oceans and sinking ships, there was a Greek uh, captain whose ship was torpedoed. And his mayday call was, baptizo, baptizo. What he was saying is, I'm sinking, I'm sinking. This, this ship went under the water. And that's why when we do baptism here at Wayside Chapel, we do practice full immersion baptism. Because it is a picture of being buried in the grave, just as Christ was, where you don't see the person. Now, we don't leave them there, just like God didn't leave Jesus in the water. Uh, I mean, in the tomb, he brought him up in newness of life. Um, this is why we do full immersion baptism. Now, does that mean if you were not fully immersed, if you didn't have a big wash, as we talked about earlier, that you're not saved? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. If you were sprinkled or poured, you had a little wash, so to speak, that doesn't mean that your baptism was no good. 
What's important is not whether you were washed in the water, it's whether you or not you were washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Like the thief on the cross who died before he was baptized, he was welcomed into heaven. Baptism doesn't save you. It's a picture of being saved. Now, there are some theological backgrounds that say you have to be baptized to be saved. Some of you are from a Church of Christ background, and you were told you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Uh, What's interesting, they also teach you can lose your salvation, but you don't have to be re-baptized if you lost your salvation, so... There's inconsistency. If you lost it, then you should be baptized each and every time. Uh, I was raised Roman Catholic. Uh, I was uh, in the Catholic Church until the age of 16. And what that means is my parents, when I was still a baby, just a couple of weeks old, they had me baptized. Uh, They took me to the parish. The priest poured some water over my head, and he baptized me. Now, I appreciate the heart of my parents. At that time, their understanding was that I had to be baptized or if I died, I would go to a place called limbo. They teach in Catholicism, babies don't go to heaven or hell, they go to limbo if they haven't been baptized. Again, that's not found in the scriptures. Uh, And so my parents were doing the best they could, but when the priest poured water on my head as a baby, all it did was got my forehead wet. It didn't save me because I didn't have a personal faith in my heart. At the age of 16, I came to understand who Jesus was fully and what he did to save me by dying on the cross and being that full and complete payment for my sins. Remember, he said, it is finished, paid in full, not down payment made, now you do the rest. And so when I came to faith at the age of 16, that's when I Uh, was saved. Now, possibly I had an understanding and God wrote my name in the book of life a little earlier, but that's when I know I made a profession of faith. Now, I was not baptized until six years later. As a baby believer, I was growing and learning in my understanding of who God was and what he did. And when I came to understand what baptism was and how I needed to do it as a believer, I was baptized. So here's a picture of my baptism. Uh, this is not the Jordan River in Israel. Uh, you'll notice there's a, de- uh, a beaver dam in the back. This is in mountains. I'm at 7,000 feet in Cimarron, New Mexico. That's a snowmelt stream, and uh, it was cold. Uh, the guy baptizing me is a friend of mine named David Daniels, who's also a pastor now in the Dallas area at Pantigo Bible, now Central Bible. And David was waxing eloquent. I'm like, put me under the water, you know, because I was freezing to death. And so the reason I was baptized there, you can take the picture down, is because I had been a a counselor at this ranch camp in Cimarron, New Mexico. It was a secular ranch camp, and they hired a Christian staff. The, The director was a strong believer and wanted to have a witness to the the campers, and they would bring kids there for two months at a time. It was where they would dump the kids. Parents would go off and go, woo we're free for the summer. And we had these kids. Well, I witnessed to this, these kids all summer, and, and as one who came to understand, hey, I need to take this step of obedience. I wanted to use that uh, opportunity at that camp to say to all these campers, hey, this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. So I I was baptized there as a public witness to them and also an opportunity to share my faith. Now, the place where you're baptized is not important. It's why you're being baptized that's important. I've 
baptize people here in our sanctuary in a baptistry as well as many other churches. I baptize people in backyard swimming pools, in stock ponds. I baptize them in rivers all around the world, including the Jordan uh, River in Israel. Uh, I baptize people in hospital beds where somebody was in the ICU and came to faith and wasn't going to be able to get out and said, I want to be baptized. We didn't do a full immersion baptism. I, you know, did a sprinkling there in the hospital. I baptize people in a bathtub in a closed country where having a public baptism would have meant imprisonment for me and them and possibly even death for the believer. So we uh, baptized in a bathtub in an apartment. So it's not important where you were baptized. What's important is your understanding of why you're being baptized. At first, you have that foundation of faith in Christ, and then you're following through uh, in this step of obedience, showing you belong to Christ. Romans 6, 3 through 4 tells us, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. This is just telling us how it is a sign of our salvation and how uh, as when we baptize people, we say buried in the likeness of his death, raised in newness of life. As you look at my left hand, I have a, a gold wedding ring on. Now, this ring does not make me married. I can take this ring off. Uh, My life might come to an end if I did that, but uh, it doesn't make me married, right? This is a symbol to all who see it that I'm married. 33 years ago, uh, the ring didn't make me married. It was an outward sign of the ceremony, the covenant I made to my wife. And and so baptism is the same thing. It doesn't make you uh, become saved. It is a symbol to all who see your baptism as saying, I know this person has this private faith and there's this public declaration of it. As I said before, water doesn't wash away our sins. It's the blood of Jesus that did that. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1.17, Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. Friends, if baptism were necessary to save you, Paul would have said, Christ sent me to baptize in order for somebody to be saved. But he says baptism is not the gospel. The gospel is what is preached, the good news, that proclamation, what we read there uh, earlier about what Christ did when he died on the cross to save us from our sins. This, this word baptism uh, is, is not found in the great, co- well, it is found in the Great Commission, but the word I want to focus on there is where it tells us to make disciples. As you look at Matthew twenty-eight nineteen through 20, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." The controlling command there is make disciples. Going, baptizing, teaching are all in participial forms. They're the methods of making a disciple. And the word disciple means a learner, a follower. It's the way that we walk with God. It's the way that we show our growth and and as we're obedient through things like being baptized. This is what we talked about earlier about sanctification where we're growing in our walk with God. 
Peter tells us here in verse 21, baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience. This word translated as appeal is a legal term that means to make a pledge. It's why when you see me do a baptism, I will always ask the person after they declare their faith in Christ as their personal savior, I'll say, are you committing to live your life as a disciple for him? Are you making a public declaration, uh, a, a pledge that you're going to be a follower of Christ? Baptism is this public testimony of our private faith. And, and as you know, as you walk with God, there are times you're not walking with him. You're backsliding. You're not living as you should. And, and your conscience is, is, is not clean. You're, you're convicted. And that's God's way of saying you need to stop what you're doing. You need to, to, to you know, get walking with me again. And baptism is, is another way, he says here, that we are showing we're, we're walking and obeying God. This is the appeal of our conscience. Hebrews 10, 12 tells us, But he, this is Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins, for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. When Jesus Christ sat down, it means he's seated in heaven, and he's seated because his work is finished. It's what verse 22 tells us. He is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Jesus defeated sin, death, and Satan at the cross. The only thing left to be done is our part of saying, Jesus, I accept you as my personal Savior. I accept your gift of new and eternal life. Friends, if you've never taken that step of faith, whether you're here or worshiping online, I invite you to do so. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. As I said earlier, if you've never taken that step of personal faith, What's keeping you from doing so right now? What's keeping you from accepting God's gift of grace, understanding that there is nothing that you and I do to add to the finished work of Christ? He said it is finished, paid in full. So if you haven't received his great gift of new and eternal life, I invite you to do so. Will you join me, please, as we go to the Lord in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your great love. We thank you for love that was demonstrated, as Romans 5, 8 says, that while we were yet sinners, you, Christ, died for us. I pray, Lord Jesus, if there's anyone here who has not yet accepted that gift of new life, that they would realize today that they are a sinner, one who has not lived a perfect life, one who needs your son, and that they would say to you even now, right now, Lord, Dear God, I'm a sinner, and I recognize I owe a penalty of death. I thank you, Jesus, you died in my place, and I accept your death as the payment for my sins. I believe, Jesus, you rose from the dead three days later, as you said, showing you conquered sin and death. I accept you today, Jesus, as my Lord and Savior. I thank you for that gift of new and eternal life I have. And Lord God, for all of us who have taken that step of faith before, if there are any of us who have not yet taken that step of obedience where we've been baptized, Lord, I pray that you would help them to consider in their heart and mind today, why not? And what's to keep them from taking this next step? Lord, would you use us as your witnesses? Would you help us to live lives that honor you and point people to you? We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.
Well, as we close today, I want to give a quick update on where we are at Wayside with our uh, mask and uh, various safety protocols. As you know, we've been walking for a year through COVID, and I appreciate all that you have been doing to uh, keep our congregation safe, to serve one another, and to do various things. Uh, as you know, this section on our 410 campus has been uh, opened up as a no mask, no social distancing section. And in our adult ministries, we've been allowing people to be mask optional. You don't have to wear a mask if you don't feel comfortable. Uh, without a mask, you are certainly welcome to continue wearing masks. What we have to this point required is that in our children's and our student ministries, uh, for the, those uh, demographics to be wearing masks and our workers as well. But starting next Sunday, uh, given that San Antonio's positivity rate has continued to go down and hold down, if you're not aware of it, praise God for this, we are the largest city in America with the lowest positivity rate. Uh, and so, yeah, that's worth clapping about. Uh, God has been gracious to us and has continued to protect us. Now, we're aware that things could turn. Things could go backwards. There may be a need to re-implement some protocols and safety steps. So, you know, we'll keep you posted as we continue to monitor what's going on. But starting next Sunday, uh, children and students and volunteers do not have to wear masks. You are certainly welcome to continue wearing masks or to send your children with masks if you are most comfortable that way. The other change that's going to happen is this center section here. Uh, is we're, We've already removed social distancing to the right here. We're going to remove social distancing in the center section. Now, the south part of our sanctuary, this section and the south balcony will continue to be socially distanced and to wear masks coming in and exiting. So if you are not yet comfortable uh, being, you know, without masks or being closer to people, then these sections will continue to remain the socially distanced and mask area. There will be an email going out this afternoon. If you're a part of our church communication, you'll have, get this information as well as additional information about when we're adding back in coffee and food to our events and activities here. So please read that email. Again, thank you for all you've been doing to serve one another and to uh, keep others safe. So God bless you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.